I'll begin in verse 23 and read it for us. It says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then in chapter 3, he goes on and says, Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we consider it together. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do ask that you would be our teacher in these next few moments. You know that we come... Uh, The middle of the week, worn out and distracted and have a lot on our mind and a lot going on. And we pray that uh, your spirit would open up our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts, and enable us by your grace and by your power and your kindness to see and to behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus once again. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. One of my favorite shows these days is Parks and Rec. Uh, Ron Swanson is the greatest character in the history of television. That's an objective fact. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the show, it's, it's, it's kind of similar to The Office in the way that it's shot and the humor behind it, but it takes place in a small town government office, a parks and recreation office in this uh, small town in Indiana. And one of my favorite uh, episodes is where two of the main characters, Tom and Donna, celebrate their annual treat yourself day. Now, what the premise behind this day is, they take one day out of the year where they stop work and they um, uh, take the whole day to get massages and pamper themselves and to you know, blow money on things that they want but they don't really need. And so on this particular episode, one of the reasons why it's so great is they decide to bring along one of the other characters named Ben. Now, Ben is this uptight, tightly wound, kind of workaholic guy. And so they think it would be a, it, this would do him some good to go to treat yourself day. So the scene is they're in this like relaxation spa and lounging in robes. Uh, they're, they're drinking these refreshing drinks. They're getting acupuncture on their face because apparently that's... Uh, relaxing, and there's like a, there's like harps gently playing in the background, and like uh, a gentle waterfall cascading in the distance. It's like the serene oasis. And there they are. They've just gotten their massages. They're lounging in their robes. And here's what Ben says. He goes. He's talking to Tom, and he goes, "Okay, so I don't get it. So treat yourself day 
is just a day where you go to the spa and then the mall, and then Tom goes, I knew you wouldn't get it. Well, I'm a relaxation novice. Give, Give me some guidance here. The point of this is to pamper yourself. Just relax, man. And Ben goes, I can't. There's something about the sound of harps that makes me nervous. <laughs> and then in the very next scene, he's getting acu- Ben, the uptight one, is getting acupuncture on his face and he's sweating and he's freaking out. And he says, This is the most stressed out I've been in my life. <laughs> And, you know, I just, we just happened to watch that on um, uh, television the other day. And that image haunted me. Because it is this image of someone who has just got a massage, who's in a robe, who is trying to relax and he can't. He's stressed out because he's not working. Do you know what that image reminded me of? You. App State students. Why can't y'all relax? Why can't why are y'all so busy? Why are y'all so stressed out and you cram 800 things into your day so that there's there's no free time anymore in your life? Do you know what the uh, the new answer to the question how are you doing is, right? You know what it is. Busy. It used to be good, fine, you give kind of these cliche answers. Now it's man, I'm busy. Busy, busy. Just listen for it if you haven't yet. If you haven't heard it yet. But this image, uh, of course, it doesn't just remind me of you. It reminds me of me as well. I mean, I, I have a hard time stopping. I have a hard time relaxing, a hard time slowing down, gearing down, stopping. I mean, I actually have stress dreams where the Matt Howell in my dream is busy and stressed out. That is, that is not a fun night to go through or to wake up from. It's not restful. But um, the reason I bring all this up is because we're actually in good company. The two stories that I just read for us really zero in and focus in on people that can't stop. They can't rest either. They are restless. They're restless. And what we're going to find as we dig through this passage, through these two stories, is we're going to discover why it is that they can't rest. And consequently, we're going to discover why we can't rest either. But we're also going to discover how we can. So really, I mean, those are the two things I just want to look at with you tonight. Why you can't rest, and then how you can. Okay? Two things. Why you can't rest, how you can. And by far, uh, the first point is going to be the longer of the two. So just to set your expectations, we'll be in the first one forward. The longer of the two. Why you can't uh, rest. Okay, well, in order to answer that question, uh, we really do need to unpack what's going on in the story. Both of these stories center around this subject, uh, this, this subject that the Bible refers to as the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is, is God's command. It's one of the Ten Commandments where he commands his people just to rest, to stop to stop working and to actually rest. It's, it's basically like, uh, 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 you know, work six days, take the seventh day off. It's a one-day vacation per week that God gives to you as a gift. And the intent behind this day really is to be replenishing and to recharge your batteries. It really is to be a day of joy and encouragement, a, joy, a, a, a day of worship, a day of, uh, you know, um, relaxation. So... Um, the Sabbath commandment, though, if you think about it, it says, uh, you know, rest and don't work. But 
That's actually kind of vague. Don't work. So what happened is that the Pharisees of the day, the religious people of the day, came along and they said, well, that, that, that commandment's way too vague because it doesn't specify what work is. Is this work? Is that work? So what they did is they came up with all these extra rules to determine what work actually was. So, for example, they had rules that said you had to count how many footsteps you took on the Sabbath day. And if you took one too many, that would be a day of work and you broke the rule. No, no on you. Or they made a rule that you cannot uh, pull a chair back from a table because that would be considered heavy lifting. That would be considered working. Uh, you, you were not allowed to kick the dirt, you know, board, kick the dirt, uh, because that would be considered tilling the soil, and that was work. So let, let me just show you from this text uh, that that's actually what's going on here. If you go at the first story, chapter 2, verse 23 on, Jesus and his disciples are eating some grain as they're walking through a field. Just walking through a field, there's heads of grain, pluck it off the top, pop it in the mouth. And uh, the, the Pharisees see this, but they don't see it as like Jesus and his crew go into the fridge for like a snack. They see this as harvesting. They're working. They're breaking the Sabbath. And so they call them on it. And in the next story, in chapter 3, uh, a very similar thing happens. It's on the Sabbath day, and Jesus is in the synagogue, is in church, and there happens to be a, a man there with a withered hand. It's like, uh, like Dumbledore from book 6. This guy's just got a withered hand. And so uh, the setup to this story is almost like a sting operation. The Pharisees are just kind of watching intently to see if Jesus is going to heal this man on the Sabbath. So Jesus tells the guy to stand up, and the guy stands up and he looks at the crowd and says, look, what's the point of the Sabbath? Is it to bring life or is it to take away life? Is it to restore the broken and to re, uh, you know, repair that which is broken? Or are we going to sit around and wait for 24 hours to then do something about this guy's condition? And nobody has an answer. And Jesus gets angry about it and, says, and, and heals them right on the spot. And actually, then the Pharisees and the religious people of the day walk out, you know, plotting an assassination uh, hit on Jesus. That's how they spent their Sabbath, ironically enough. Now, let me ask you this. Um, can you imagine how insane you would go if for 24 straight hours you were counting your footsteps, you were meticulously making careful you didn't move any furniture that would be considered heavy lifting, you wouldn't kick the dirt, uh, you know, you wouldn't, um, you know, do any type of work, and you were functioning as the sin police for everybody else. I mean, if, if that were me, I would be a paranoid wreck. Uh, you know, walking on a, you know, minefield is not restful. It is stressful. But that's what was going on with these guys. They had all of these rules. And the question is, okay, why? Why are the Pharisees, why are the religious people so uptight, making all these rules, trying to protect so you? Don't, you don't break the Sabbath on this day. What is going on? Well, we find out in the story that the Pharisees had a radically different spiritual paradigm than Jesus did. They had a very radically different way of relating to God than Jesus did. So for the Pharisees, for example, the spiritual logic of their life was basically this. If I obey, then God will accept me. 
If I do the right things and I don't do the wrong things, then God will love me, he'll accept me, he'll take me to heaven. In other words, uh, the baseline operating principle of their life is when I perform, then I'm good. As long as I'm performing, then I'm good. In other words, their, their whole approach to life was salvation by performance. Salvation by performance. Now, there are many of you in this room that would claim to be a Christian. Claim to identify yourself as a Christian. And my guess is there are many of you who claim to be a Christian that are living this salvation by performance life. Let me give you a few diagnostic test to see if this is you. you. You will know that you're living the Pharisee salvation by performance life if this happens. You screw up in some way. You blow it. You, you sin. You, you know, um, make some egregious mistake. And you can't pray right afterward. Or you can't pick up the Bible and read it right afterward. Because your thought is, uh, that's just too cheap. I, I, I can't. Uh, I, I've got to I've got to show God that I take my sins seriously. That, 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 I, that I've, got to, um, I've got to wait at least a week before I can read the Bible or pray again, especially if I've really blown it. And so for that week, what you do is you throw guilt and you throw shame on yourself and you think, okay, as long as I feel bad long enough, then he will see that now I'm worthy, I can start praying and reading the Bible again. That's salvation by performance. You're just performing for him. Showing him that you're worthy, you're really devoted, you really take your sin seriously. Or here's another way that you may know that you're a uh, Pharisee. It's, it's when you, you feel entitled to good things from God when you're doing good. You're going to RUF, you're reading the Bible, you're praying, you're going to church, you're being a good roommate, you're trying to do the right thing, you're watching your language. And you expect, therefore, your life to go well. And when it doesn't, when bad things happen, you get angry at God. Because this, this is not the arrangement. Or the flip side is, when you know you screwed up, when you know you're doing bad, you really do feel like you deserve bad things from God. And so you know, when bad things do happen, you, the way that you think is, this is God punishing me. This is God making me pay for some sinful thing that I've done in my past. He's bringing it up to make me pay for it now. Salvation by performance. Or another way is that you think, okay, deep down, deep down you think, when I'm sold out, when I'm on fire, when I'm hyped up, when I'm completely devoted, when I'm completely surrendered to him, then he likes me, then he loves me, then he's for me. But if I have any doubts pop up, if I don't connect with God emotionally in worship, if I start to feel burnt out with this Christian thing, that God is severely disappointed in me, angry with me, he doesn't like me, I'm, on, I'm not on his top of his list. All of this is salvation by performance. And if this is the engine that drives many of you that claim to be Christians. Now my guess is there are some of you who are thinking, uh, I don't care about any of this. I don't even know if I believe in God. Uh, I don't care about salvation by performance. I'm not religious. I, don't think I'm, I don't, wouldn't consider myself a Christian. Who cares about salvation by performance stuff? That's not me. And what I want to say to you is, uh, don't be naive. This is you too. The engine that drives your life is the same exact thing, even though you may not consider yourself religious. And the way that it works for you is, um, well, let me set it up this way. You remember that movie, I don't know if you've seen it, it's an older movie, the movie Chariots of Fire. 
It's a, uh, it's a true story about these two Olympic runners, um, and one of them tells you why it is that he's running, he's going the distance, he's, you know, he's putting his body through all of the strain. He says this, his name's Harold Abrams. He says this in the movie. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. I'm, I'm doing this race, it's a 10 second race. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. For those of you that don't consider yourselves religious, you are working your fingers to the bone to achieve something so that you can justify your existence, so that you can make a name for yourself, so that you can feel important, you can feel special, you can feel distinct from other people. And so the way that it works is this. Deep down in your heart of hearts, you say, I will know that I'm good, I will know that I'm special, I'll know that I'm somebody, I will know that I'm important when, and then you attach these clauses to it, when I get that GPA, when I get that job, when my parents are finally impressed with me, when that professor is finally impressed with me, when I have uh, a lot of people that like me, when I'm popular, when, when I get that girl or that guy to go out with me, when I fit into this particular size, all of this is the same basic framework. When you achieve, when you accomplish... When you perform, then you're good. Salvation by performance. This is why, by the way, the funny guy on campus can never be serious. There's too much pressure to keep performing. And this is why the apathetic girl can never start caring about anything. There's there's too much pressure to keep performing because their identity gets wrapped up into the performance. This is the um, the same way for me, by the way. I mean, I struggle with this too. I spend way too long on preparing for these sermons, whatever you call these things. I put way too many hours in for this moment right now because deep down I think I am only valuable when I perform well. If I come in here, come into RUF and fail, give a really crappy, terrible sermon, then, then who am I? What am I? Salvation by performance, it's the same thing. And this is why you can't rest. This is why you can't stop. Because as soon as you stop, you're no longer good. If the logic in your heart is, when I perform, when I achieve, when I accomplish, then I'm good, then as soon as you stop, you're no longer good. And this is why you feel like you have to prove to God, to yourself, and to everyone else around you that you are Different, that you're important, that you're special, and so you work and you work and you work and you can't stop and you don't stop. And when you do stop, you feel guilty about it because you feel like you're wasting time. You feel like you're being lazy. You feel like you're missing an opportunity to prove yourself and someone's going to get ahead of you. Now, before we go on to the second point of how you can actually begin to experience rest, I need to address what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking... This is not me at all. I am not busy. (laughs) I'm not stressed out. I do not struggle with uh, working too much. In fact, I struggle getting out of bed. That's my problem. I'm okay with rest. It's the work part I have a problem with. I want to say to you, don't be naive either. Don't be naive either. Uh, let's, let's explore that for a second. Let's take, um, let's take video games for a second. My guess is there are some of you that would put yourself in that camp of, I'm not busy, I'm not stressed out, I'm not all about school. 
but you do play a lot of video games. And I love video games. I love Arkham City, Red Dead Redemption's my jam, Skyrim, games like this. But I know for myself personally, when I'm playing video games, sometimes I feel exhausted playing these games. There's so much to do. There's all these missions, and as soon as you go down the road trying to do this mission, there's like three people interrupt you, now i got to go do that mission, and I'm, and I'm sitting here, I'm playing, and I'm thinking, why am I exhausted playing video games? This is stressing me out, these games. Why is even my leisure not restful? I, I actually read a very fascinating article about how designers make video games now. The way that they design them now is they build into it features so that you keep playing, so that you're addicted to keep playing. And so the way that it works is is they build in achievements into the game. And once you get an achievement, it unlocks more opportunities to win more achievements. This is why uh, you can play that one level of Angry Birds for hours trying to get three stars. And it's driving you crazy. And you're thinking, you know, if anybody from the outside looks at you, it's like, who gives a crap about three stars? Why does that matter? Oh, because it unlocks more opportunities to play Angry Birds, to get more three stars. You see how this cycle works. Look, this is a true story. On um, September 17th, 2007, in Beijing, China, a man died from having played three straight days' worth of video games at one of those public internet cafes. You hear about this all the time now in the news, that people go into these public internet cafes, play video games, and actually die. This particular guy, we don't know what game he was playing, But he went without food, without water, without sleep for three days and died of exhaustion. Now that raises an enormous question. What was he trying to prove through a video game? Salvation by performance. Now you may think, uh, just because you're not stressed out and busy with schoolwork and extracurricular activities, that doesn't mean you're living the salvation by performance life. Video games is one example. Take another example. Why do you work out? Why do you go to the gym? Why do you lift? Why do you run? Because my guess is for a lot of you, the reason goes much deeper than just, well, exercise is healthy and I enjoy it. The deeper reason is because the way that I am right now, I am unlovable. I am unworthy. And so you perform and you say, when I lift, when I run, that's getting me to a place where I can be lovable, where I can be worthy. And you look at yourself and say, I'm too fat, I'm too scrawny, I'm too whatever. But if I can bench that amount, then I will be somebody. If I can fit into that size, then someone might love me. Don't you see, you're, you're trying to justify your existence, you're validating yourself, you're, you're trying to prove to yourself. It's just all salvation by performance. Deep down you think, I'm not okay the way that I am, but if I perform, then I will be. And this is why you can't stop. This is why you can't rest. This is why you're exhausted, why you're frustrated, why you're stressed out, why you're anxious. Uh, this is why you have deep, suppressed anger. Uh, but you won't let anybody see it because if someone sees you, ang- you know, angry, then you fail at your social performance. So you've got to push it down and keep smiling. Look, this is, you get the point. 
The reason why you can't rest, the reason why you can't stop, is because you're trying to justify your existence. You're trying to prove yourself, which is to say you're just trying to save yourself. It's all salvation by performance. And I said that's the longer of the two points. But let's look at the second thing now, and we'll start landing the plane. How can you rest then? If that's why you can't, then let's take a second and look at how you can. And the way that you can is if you go back to that first episode in chapter 2. After the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they call him out, Jesus gives them a really interesting response. In verse 27, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And what he's doing there is he's affirming and he's celebrating God's commandment to keep the Sabbath. He's saying, look, it's a gift. It was made for you. It's for you. Take advantage of it. But then what he does in the next verse is very interesting. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What? What does that mean? Son of Man. That is a phrase that he's jacking from the Old Testament and applying it to himself. It's, it's, it's found in Daniel chapter 7, if you're interested. And it's a phrase that refers to a suffering king that will one day be vindicated. And so all throughout the gospel stories, you always hear that Jesus referring to himself as son of man, son of man. It's his favorite self-designated title. We could talk about that for a long time, but all I really want you to do is just notice the fact that he's drawing our attention to his identity. All he's saying is, look, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, which is to say I'm the source of the Sabbath. I am the source. I'm the thing that can give you the deep rest that you want, the deep rest that you need. I can provide that for you. I'm the source of it. I'm the Lord of it. How, though? How does Jesus give us this deep soul rest that we need? Batman, that's the answer. If you are familiar with The Dark Knight, not the new one that just came out, the one before that, The Dark Knight, the basic premise of that movie, the basic story arc of that movie is that there's a city official named Harvey Dent. And the city is so crime-ridden, it's such a mess, but he has kind of done this huge sweeping campaign and he's really initiated so all the criminals get put in jail, except for the Joker. He's running around doing his own thing. But all these criminals are put in jail. And the whole tension of the movie is Harvey Dent has to stay clean. He, has to, he can't become corrupt. He, he's got uh, to keep his credibility. And if he does, then the, prisoner, you know, the criminals stay in jail. But if he falls, they all get released and Gotham City gets taken over again. So, of course, Harvey Dent falls and becomes corrupt and becomes two-faced. Half of his face kind of melted away. And he starts killing people and going crazy and he's, he, he, he becomes a part of the problem. And at the very end of the movie, brilliant scene. What happens is Batman and Harvey Dent slash Two-Face kind of have this final battle, as it were. And, and Batman kills them, takes them out. Harvey Dent, Two-Face is dead. And the police are on their way coming. And they have no idea that Harvey Dent has gone bad. So as they are approaching the scene, Batman makes this last-minute decision. And all of a sudden, right as they pull up, he starts running into the dark. And the police see him, and they start chasing him. And you remember, there's this kid who's standing there. He's like, Dad, why are they chasing Batman? He didn't do anything wrong. And they're chasing Batman into the night as the villain. 
What's going on? Batman, in that moment, decided to take all of the blame for Harvey Dent's atrocities. Here's Harvey Dent's life. Batman receives all the blame for it. And in the very next scene, uh, there are posters of Harvey Dent's restored face, kind of smiling and you know noble, all over Gotham City. And everybody's heralding him as a hero. He's the one that's clean of this town. He's the one that's gotten rid of Batman. He's the, he's the hero. What is he doing? He's receiving all of the credit for Batman's heroic work. In that final scene, there's this switch. Batman, who is the hero, gets all of the blame for the bad guy. And Harvey Dent, Two-Face, who is the bad guy, gets all of the credit, all of the praise for the hero. That's the gospel. The gospel is this. On the cross, Jesus is receiving the blame for your performance. He is being crushed underneath the weight of God's wrath for your performance, for what you do, for what I do. He's receiving the blame for it. And when you come to him by faith, you get the credit for his heroic life. You get the credit for his perfectly lived life. So that if you are in Christ, if you receive Jesus by faith, when God looks at you, he looks at you as having the credit of not only never having sinned ever, but as having perfectly kept God's law always. When Jesus was on the cross getting crushed, what did he say? He said, it is finished. The most beautiful words in the Bible are those. Because when you come to Jesus by faith, this means that that work of validating yourself, that work of justifying your existence is now over. It's finished. It's done. All that needs to be done for you has been done. So that when you come to Jesus, when you are a Christian and you understand the gospel, you begin to say to yourself things like this. Okay, I have nothing. I've got nothing to prove anymore. I don't have to prove to God, to you, to myself that I'm somebody because Jesus is enough for me. And his work is enough for me. And what that means is that when you begin to buy into that and drink that and live that, you can finally stop and rest Rest in what he has done. All the work that needs to be done has been done. He said it's finished. And if it's finished, you can stop. See, this is the difference between the salvation by performance life and then the gospel life. For the salvation by performance life, the work is never over. It's never finished. There's always more work to do. There's always more people to impress. It's never done. You can never stop. But the gospel life is, it's finished. It's over. You can finally get off the hamster wheel and rest. And you know what this does? This frees you to not cram your free time with 800 activities and extracurricular things and meetings and projects. You can look at your schedule and say, you know what? Because the gospel's true, I don't need a crammed schedule to validate my existence anymore. Jesus is enough for me. And then you can sign up for what you want to and then go home and rest at the end of the day. You know what this also does? This also frees you to care for your own soul. You know, you no longer think about reading the Bible and praying in terms of inefficiency. You know, this is just wasting time when I can't, I could be working through my to-do list for today. You actually can breathe and 
relax and commune with God personally and just enjoy being with Him, not feel like you're wasting time. You know, this, this also frees you to not do any schoolwork on Sunday, to actually keep one of the commandments and obey the Sabbath, as crazy as that sounds, because you would say to yourself, um, look, because the gospel's true, I don't need an A to validate my existence anymore. Jesus is enough. And I'm going to put in my work for the week, and then when it gets to Sunday, I'm going to rest. And if I don't get a good grade, if I don't get as higher grade as I could, I'm okay with that because I don't need it to validate my existence. Jesus is enough. I'll end with this. Um, My wife gave me permission to tell the story. But when she was in college, she went to a really academically intense school. And it was uh, tons of work. No one ever took breaks. And she remembers this one night where she was so stressed out about an exam that was coming up the next day, the, you know, the next morning. Uh, she, couldn't, she couldn't get to sleep that night. Her mind was just so overwhelmed. She was so stressed out she couldn't sleep. So what she did was um, she took a Tylenol PM. Uh, that didn't work. I think she took something else. That didn't work. And then she went down the hall and got some more pills from another one of her uh, friends on the hall. And the next thing she knew, she woke up in the infirmary, had blacked out, woke up in the infirmary, felt you know, embarrassed, uh, felt weak that she couldn't you know, live up to the pressure, keep up with the, the, uh, all that was asked of her. And that semester, uh, she was also going to RUF, and that particular semester, her campus minister was teaching through the Ten Commandments, was just taking one commandment per week and talking about it. And when it got to the fourth commandment, talking about the Sabbath, Catherine felt really convicted and really felt like, you know, I really need to rest. I need to take this seriously. This is a gift. Why am I not taking advantage of it? And so she started practicing Sabbath. And on Sundays, she wouldn't work. She would worship and rest. And so after church, she'd go to church in the morning. Instead of, you know, rushing home and hitting the books, you know, doing all of her homework on Sunday, she'd go out to lunch with her friends and just hang out and laugh and enjoy their friendship and she would take bike rides around uh, you know the place where she lived she lived in you know her school was in the uh, Virginia mountains so she would go on you know car rides and bike rides and over time she just grew less stressed out about school and the Sabbath Sunday was really kind of the highlight of her week she would work and, and look forward to this day of rest this day of this gift of just sort of recharging her batteries you will, you will begin to enjoy the Sabbath of the Lord when you first begin to rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. And vice versa. You will begin to enjoy the Lord of the Sabbath when you actually start observing the Sabbath of the Lord. But I want you to know, only the gospel can power you, can free you to stop, to get off the hamster wheel of having to validate your existence through whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish or achieve, it frees you to work hard, to put in your work, and then at the end of the day, go to bed. At one point, Jesus says this, Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Consider that an invitation tonight. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I'm such a hypocrite for preaching this. 
I, uh, I do not rest well, and you know it, and you're teaching me what it looks like to rest. But Father, I repent of my busyness. We repent of our busyness, of how we look to our achievements to justify ourselves instead of looking to the one who has justified us by grace. Father, I pray that you would press the gospel deeper and deeper into our souls so that you would give us rest. Give us rest of our souls so that we would rest with our bodies. We need it. We pray that you would be so kind to do it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.